Good morning, everyone. Uh, we're going to turn again to the book of Hebrews. We're in chapter 8, again, page 1005. If you're here and you don't have your Bible, uh, it's the blue book that's in the pew or the chair. And you can turn to 1000, not 8, 5, 1005. We're going to, our passage lists 8 through 13, but with a little pickup uh, in verse 7. This passage is a quote from Jeremiah chapter 31. It speaks in a time of a national crisis. In fact, collapse of the nation into judgment. At that very dark time, this light was spoken. That though there's been this disobedience of the first covenant, there's a new covenant coming. And so this, our writer is... Is quoting this to say, we now have come to the new covenant time. It's been established in Christ Jesus. And as Ryan talked about last week, uh, it is a better covenant on better promises. So we're going to look at those better promises and see just some of the reasons it's such a glorious, wonderful new covenant. So starting with verse 7, for... If that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For... I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. That's the reading of God's word. Let us pray together. Lord, open your word to our our hearts that uh, we might embrace the promises of your word that we might rest in Christ, that we might, Lord, gladly embrace this new covenant that you have established for your people in Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. So we're at the men's retreat this weekend. Uh, Friday night, we're at the Green Pickle. Uh, We had enjoyed lots of lively discussion. John Whiteside came up to the table to tell us he was leaving. But being a policeman here in Fort Worth, he said, guys, I'm leaving. I'll be checking doorknobs in town, making sure everything is locked up. And we're like, yeah, all they've ever seen are Glenrose cops. 
They've never seen a Fort Worth guy. They don't, they can't imagine what's going to happen when he hits the pavement. And then John says, only wish I could have arrived on a train. There's a new sheriff in town. (laughs) Typical. If you know John, that's typical John Whiteside humor. Um, Of course, none of us knows what he did that night, but Glenn Rose will never be the same. Of course, a new sheriff in town tells us, right, that however bad things have been, they're not going to be that way anymore. It's not going to be like that anymore. Things are going to be wholly different. And so in that way, you might say Jeremiah is coming along and saying, there is a new covenant in town. There is a whole new way of doing things. A whole new thing that is different than it's ever been. Imagine a people working in an impressive, a dangerous factory, poverty-stricken, uh, miserable wages, barely keeping their family alive. And they hear that a new contract is coming, bringing really safe conditions and a viable wage. That's the feel here. A new contract. Covenant is kind of like a treaty, contract, agreement. A new agreement is on the way. A new covenant. And it outlines this passage because in verse 8 he has the word new covenant. And then he adds to this quote another statement in verse 13. New covenant. So it describes, it encloses this whole little section. It's about the new covenant. But the question is, what are the new conditions? You might say, well, what makes it new? What is there about this that there wasn't about the covenant with Moses? And there's simply three things. We'll put it under three heads. A new new obedience to God. Then a new knowledge of God. And then a new acceptance with God, okay? A new obedience to God, a new new knowledge of God, and a new acceptance with God. So this new obedience to God flows out of the very reason he is giving the new covenant. Notice he says in verse 8, I will establish a new covenant And then verse 9, because they didn't continue in the old one. They didn't obey me. That's why there has to be a new covenant. This time, unlike that covenant, I will put my word in their minds and write it on their hearts. That is to say, I will cause them to want to obey my word from the inside out. Okay? So the law that was given in Moses is pure. It's good. All right? Don't kill people. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't cheat. Uh, Honor your father and mother. Honor and love God. It's good. The problem is that the law, it wasn't the law. It was their heart. It's the heart of man that's the problem when you bring it to the law. They might say, as they did when God made that covenant with them, listen to this hopeful sound, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. That's what they said. Of course, you know that everyone who said that ended up, their bodies, 
fell in the wilderness under judgment because they did not obey the law of God. They declared it, but they didn't have the moral power to match their good intentions. The whole generation died because of their disobedience. The problem is man's heart. Like Jeremiah also said earlier in his prophecy, can a leopard change his spots so you can do good who are accustomed to doing evil? The scripture comes to us and says, you have a problem that's so deep, you can't change yourself any more than a leopard could change its spots. That's your trouble. Jesus weighs in on this. And he made this statement in John, uh, Matthew 15. He says, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. He says, you're not defiled by things outside that come inside you. You're defiled by what comes out of you. So Jesus doesn't come to us and say, hey, you got to keep your mind out of the gutter. Jesus comes to us and says, hey, your mind is the gutter. You are the maker of the gutter. It comes out of your innermost being. You can't do anything about it, but I'm here to change you. That's part of the new covenant. I'm going to put my word in your heart. I'm going to make you want to obey me from the inside out. I'm going to transform you right where you've got to be transformed in your innermost being. So this new obedience, I love how, of course, Calvin weighs in on it. Not John, Calvin and Hobbes, of course. And Calvin gets all antsy and nervous as he approaches Christmas every year, right? It's a really hard time because he wants to be good enough to get the presents, but he really doesn't want to be good, right? He talks about his greed overcoming his desire to be evil, you know, like my greed for presents overcoming my desire to, be, to do wrong, which is bad and bad, right? It's just, so he says... Uh, he's talking with uh, Hobbes. Hobbes, his pet tiger, is reading. He says, this article says that many people find Christmas to be stressful, a stressful time of year. And Calvin, I believe it. This season sure fills me with stress. Hobbes, really? How come? I hate being good. (laughs) The stress, because you just hate being good, but you got to be good because you got to get the presents. It's like um, Skyler, who's another comic, okay? This is in Shu. He's the boy, uh, Shu's son. And he's sitting in school. I've, I've told you this some years back, but he's sitting in school and he's taking a test. He says, oh, I don't know what the answer is. I don't know what the answer is. Maybe if I search deep in my mind. Last frame. Boy, it sure is dark in there. <laughs> right? <laughs> And I've always thought in a very different way that when we look inside ourselves, you know, we're supposedly in some religions, you're going to find God, you're going to find this, you're going to find that. And if you have my experience, I look inside and I say, boy, is it dark in there. 
if you knew what I've thought, what I've wanted, the things I've thought that would just embarrass me. I would have to leave town if they were suddenly flashed on a screen. I bet every one of you feel the same way. Boy, is it dark in there. That's the problem when a human being meets the law. By himself, in himself, only himself. When he meets the law, it's a train wreck. The law is like this tar baby where you try to do it and then you fail and you get, you're guilty and you try to do it and you fail and guilty. And if you, if you do some things outwardly enough, then you get all prideful and boastful and you look down your nose at others and you hold them in contempt and you just get deeper and deeper. Whether you fail it or you think you're obeying it, you just get deeper and deeper into your sin. It just manifests who we are. So the law itself is good But it can't and won't make us good. God says in this new covenant, I'm going to change that. There was this narrow band of people throughout Israel, throughout the days of Israel that obeyed him. And this narrow strip of land on the east, well, from your perspective, this narrow piece of land on the east side of the Mediterranean. And in that narrow piece of land, a narrow band of people that follow God. But it's going to be very different. Isn't it encouraging that this summary as Jesus gives the law that you love God with everything in you and you love your neighbor as yourself, that he is going to bring that about in our lives. That his great work is to fix my heart on his commands, make them sweet to my taste, give me an eagerness and discipline in following those words, to live them out joyfully so that God's love begins to manifest itself in my life. So that like a compass pointing north, my, my heart begins to lean in and point toward the word of God. That's an amazing thing that God does. To transform us. My heart gravitates to the word. You might say, I have this secret thing for the word of God. And I can't get enough of it. That's what this means. Gives you a heart for his word. It's part of salvation, right? He rescues us. We end up saying, I got it bad. I got it bad for the word of God. That's what he does when he puts the word in my heart. And believe you me, I mean, don't believe you me, believe the Bible. (laughs) That's a terrible way for a minister to speak. Believe you me, because I said it. Um, But believe the word of God where the word is that which heals us and makes us whole. We read in staff recently, uh, Psalm 19 The word revives your soul. It makes you wise. It rejoices your heart. It enlightens your eyes. It's more desirable than gold. It's sweeter than honey. It brings you life. It's a lamp to your feet, a light to your path. It warns you of disaster. It brings you great reward. He's putting wholeness and healing in your heart by giving you a desire for his word. Because it is so good and nourishing and building in your life putting you back together. So a new obedience from the inside out. Then as well, a new knowledge of God. 
this is said in a couple of ways. I will be their God and they shall be my people. A promise made over and over again in the New Testament. The end of the Bible has this uh, reference that they will last forever that I will be their God. And then each one will know me. They won't be telling one another, know the Lord. They each will know me. So the new knowledge of God, a new obedience to God, but then a new knowledge of God. And what is so glorious about I will be your God? I'm always fascinated when I read about the training of an eye, seeing eye dog and how that dog is, is trained up. And then there's a time where he's given to the person who's blind. And then it's those two from there on out. And he has no other loyalty except his loyalty to that blind person. And you'd say, this dog is a sign to this man. It's his dog. And he belongs to the dog. The dog will. Isn't that amazing of the humility and kindness of God to say, I'm assigning myself to you. I'm your God. I'm your God to do you good. All of my resources, not just the resources of sight, but all of my resources, I commit to your, your good. I'm dedicated to you from now on, throughout your life and throughout eternity. You get to have me. You get to call on me and count on me. I'll be with you in the middle of everything. I will bring you through everything. I'll build you up in everything. I'll transform your character in all that you experience so that you will become in my hands a kind of light to the world, a conduit of the water of life to other people. What? Is that a calling or what? That his attachment to you and his commitment to you transforms your life so that you become this walking oasis for the good of others. I love my position in a marriage ceremony. It's one of my favorite times to be a minister because I'm like, two feet away from the faces that are right here. And one of my favorite times, and sometimes I've had men who could not get through the, the vow, you know, just broke down and cried. I mean, we just had to sit there for a little bit, you know, to wait so he could get through because uh, of he's so uh, torn up and so amazed that this woman is his and it's, or a woman that this man is his. But one of the great moments, and I know I was so thrilled when I heard these words from Kay, whom I I knew loved me. She had said it, and I'd said it to her. But when they said, do you take this man to be your wedded husband, to have and to hold, for better or worse, for richer or poor, till death do you part? And she looked me in the eye, and she says, I do. I still remember it. I do. Isn't it amazing that God, as though someone comes up to God and says, will you commit yourself to this person and will you die for their sins and you take all of those sins upon yourself so they won't have to suffer for them? And then will you come and dwell in their lives and will you overshadow their lives and 
cause all things to work together for their life. And will you prepare a place and dwell with them forever and ever in the marriage supper of the Lamb like an extended eternal um, wedding uh, celebration? I do. I do. I will be your God. There is a knowledge of God, an intimate knowledge of God in the new covenant. And when it says everyone will be intimate, everyone will know me. It's again, we've already talked about this, but imagine in the Old Testament, you're standing outside with the people of God once a year. Once a year, the high priest goes into the replica of the holy place in heaven. The replica of the throne room of God. Not even the real thing. But you all stand outside and watch him go in and watch him come out and he represents you in there. And then you jump to the New Testament And Jesus goes into not the replica, but to the real holy place in heaven. And it says, we are brought together with him in that holy place. That's the sense in which all of us in the old, all of those people in the Old Testament. Yes, they knew God. They had a certain relationship with God. And many who trusted in him, those who trusted in him were forgiven. But they were in the throne room with God as children in clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, accepted and having the favor of the Son of God. Everyone knows him in that intimate way. Everyone. And no one has to help you or go between. No one's a priest on your behalf. You're the priesthood now. That's what Peter says. You're the priesthood. You're the priest going in before God. And you're offering up offerings of thanksgiving and praise to him. And you're praying on behalf of your friends, your family, in this lost and broken world in the presence of God. Yes, you know God. Like even the priests didn't know God in that sense. You're in the real throne with Jesus. Everyone will know God. And this idea of not teaching not having to teach one another. It's not saying there's not a need for teaching. It's the way to say that we all know God in this intimate way. But there is a kind of anticipation here of the new creation where we will have the most absolute, perfect, intimate knowledge of God. And in there, in the most fulfilled way, there'll be no teachers, right? You won't go to anyone else and teach because there's, there will be this immediate, direct, perfect knowledge of God as he fills all things and we live in his presence forever and carry out the wonderful responsibilities of the new creation. So, a new obedience and a new knowledge of God. But here's the climax of the whole passage. And the whole passage to depends on this last point, a new acceptance with God. Because you see this word for, right? In verse 12, because, and this goes back and says, I will put new law in, uh, I will remake their insides and I'll, they will know me. Why? Because I'll be merciful to them. That's the whole, the whole passage rests on that thing. 
The reason that this new covenant is going to be what it is in terms of a transformation in your life, in terms of your knowledge of God, is because I will forgive your sins. And to underscore that, what does chapter 9 and chapter 10 deal with? It deals with Christ's sacrifice that takes away our sin. That's the real point he's getting to. And he dwells on it for two chapters. And then at the end of his section, you can turn over to chapter 10, verse 17. There he repeats it as the end of the section. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. See? So as important as it is to be transformed, to obey him and to know God, the reason this happens is the forgiveness of sins Brought through the offering of Jesus Christ, a sacrifice for sin. This is how the new covenant works. This is the heart of the new covenant. This is the most critical aspect of the new covenant. That there is a forgiveness that there never could be before. Sins were overlooked in the Old Testament. We, we read in other places, overlooked And even in chapter 10, verse 3, he says, there's a reminder of sins in the act of sacrifice every day, every day, every day, every day. So, yes, it was a way for you to be forgiven, but it was also a reminder. I don't think this is really fully taking care of things. Isn't that a sacrifice that reminds you of sin? But in contrast, look at verse 12. I will remember their sins no more. You go from a reminder of sin to I will remember them no more. They were overlooked, right? Now they are removed. They're gone. (laughs) Done away with. What animals could not do, no matter if it was 10 million, 10 billion animals sacrificed... All of that couldn't even scratch the surface of our sin. One offering Jesus Christ made of himself and sins were removed. Anyone who trusts in him has their sins forgiven. And so this plays back into the other two points. Okay. Let's back up into the reason we know him. The second point. That there's a new knowledge of God. The reason we know him is that there is forgiveness. (laughs) And I want to stress this. The only way you will know God is to come to him to be forgiven. If you're going to try to arrive at God or to enter his presence or to know God through your own performance, your own merit. Because you're going to try to do enough for it, you're, uh, you're, you're one of those people who's disciplined and exact and careful and you keep the rules. Whatever it may be, whatever way, or if you have this idea of God as a tyrant who you could never please enough. You will never know him. You will only know him as you come helpless As Ryan said, not hiding your sin, not making excuses for your sin, not blaming other people for your sins, but just owning your sin. 
and confessing it to him. And then you know him because you can only know him as a forgiving God. That's who he is. You can make up another God, but that's not the true God. He's the God who forgives sinners, who forgives the broken and the helpless. That's why I love what we, uh, what we read or, or what we sang. Out of my sickness into thy health, out of my sin into thyself. I come with all my sickness, with this heart that's seething with evil thoughts, that's broken and damaged and hurt and has hurt others. I bring it to you and you forgive me. I can't fix it, but I become accepted because you have forgiven me. So have you done that? Is, is, is that your approach to God? He will only be known as the God who forgives. It's only those, you see, who are helpless. Only those who know that they cannot change themselves. Only those who throw themselves, cast themselves upon the mighty hands of Christ. So... There's no knowledge of him apart from forgiveness. But this also is the key to this change of heart. Forgiveness is really the key to the change of heart that he talks about. It's when you are convinced of his grace and kindness. You're convinced of his love and his desire to take away your sin. And the love that Christ showed in in suffering to take away your sin that your heart begins to melt and you want to submit your life to him. Think, I want to put my life in the hands of one so good as he is. And so his law or his authority is planted in your heart. That's why this this question is so important. Heidelberg Why do you call him our Lord? Why do you say Lord? And and it's true because he's king, because he rules. That's true. But that's not where the catechism goes. I call him Lord because he set me free from my sin. And he's bought me with his blood. That's why I call him Lord. You see, there's the change of heart. You change, your, you change your view of his word because you change your view of him. I love uh, one of my favorite passages, and we sing a hymn based on Psalm 130. It says, there's forgiveness with you so that you may be feared or so that we might be in awe of you. There's forgiveness that brings about awe, and awe means I want to give myself to you. Submission to you because I've experienced your forgiveness. So in gratitude and amazement, our hearts are softened to his will, to his lordship, to his authority. We welcome his words. It becomes not perfectly, but there's the beginning part of a heart desire to follow him and give ourselves to him. 
That's why Paul will say, I live by faith in the Son of God. It's almost as though he said, why? Who loved me and gave himself for me. Yeah, that's why I entrust my life to him. Or Paul, in another place, in 2 Corinthians 5, saying, We no longer live for ourselves, but we live for him because he died for us. (laughs) There it is. What changed me from this bent-in self-focus? I was released when I saw the beauty and glory of Christ in the cross. And now I want to give myself up to live for him. So, this is a metaphor, it's not literal. But I like the way this, this helps me. When he says, I will write my law on your hearts, he inscribes it with his cross. You see? He inscribes it with his cross. It's when that cross is inscribed into your heart that his words, his authority, his glorious lordship, and then his law becomes, I get to submit to that. I get to have the care of this one over my life. I get to be under his lordship and rule. Are you kidding me? So, it's a great way to look at coming to Christ. There's this passage. Lord, Lord, forgive me. I trust in you who have died for sinners. I need your death for me. Lord, I want to know you. I want to be intimate with you. And I trust you that you will bring me into your throne room, into intimacy. And Lord, I have a heart. It's dark in there. And I need you to transform me. To so show me your love that I'm released from this bent into self. To give myself up to you. I mean, here the new covenant lays out all the glory of the salvation that is in Christ. And I hope if you're here and you've never given yourself to Christ, you will. You read through this passions and say, Lord, make this true of me. Make this true of me. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your amazing love in Christ Jesus. All of this done for us to bring us to yourself to know, so that we could know your forgiveness, so that we could be transformed, so we could have a new obedience, a new knowledge of God, a new acceptance with God. Oh, Lord, what treasures, what gifts that transform our lives. Of course, they don't become perfect. We still may cope with cancer as our brother Ken We still may have tragedies in relationships that we can't help. We still may go through all kinds of downturns and sufferings. But, oh, Lord, in it all, you will attend us. You will form us. And one day, when you come, you will wipe every tear away. And all the curse and suffering and sin will be removed. And we will live in the new creation. In perfect joy, no one having to say, know the Lord, because we will all know you intimately and perfectly forever.
and we'll be made perfect in our joy. Oh, Lord, we thank you for that hope. We thank you that you would attend us and you would commit yourself to be our God forever. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.